Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is a podcast dedicated to classic wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, usually the 80s. Um, we'll get rolling soon. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in a search for John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Uh, if you want to donate to this podcast, uh, go to PayPal and donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. This is a free ad-free podcast, so if you'd like to say thank you, that's how you can do it. Thank us with cash, baby. <laughs> and uh, and before I get rolling, Steve, um, I just want to say I know Howard Stern listens to this podcast, and former President Donald Trump was really mean to Howard. Uh, he said Howard was unattractive, and... If anyone has the right to call someone unattractive, it's Donald Trump. And he did it at two in the morning, which makes it so much worse because that, that's, that's closing time. That's when everyone is attractive. So, Howard, we love you, man. Keep listening and keep your chin up. Steve, tell everyone about the Facebook group. Well, it is the best group. There's no doubt about it. We have the most dedicated, loyal listeners. And uh, I want to single one person out, uh, Mark Rollin, who had a great contribution this week. He actually shared the- Most line- weeks. Well, it, it, but even uh, this time, even more than usual, he had, uh, he had a, uh, an actual lineup card from the uh, uh, St. Louis Wrestling uh, from, uh, I guess, the Kiel. June, June the 73. Kiel. June of 73. It, uh, listen to this- uh, a double main event, Harley Race, uh, NWA Kingpin versus Bruno San Martino. Co-main event, uh, former champion Gene Kaniski versus future champion Jack Briscoe. And on the undercard, Ron Fuller versus Terry Funk, am- amongst other good matches. So uh, an excellent card. And someone pointed out that it's the air conditioning that may have been the draw. And that person was right. St. Louis is hot. I only, I've never been to St. Louis, but I've watched Cardinals games from St. Louis. And they have the thermometer on the field where it's like 130 degrees. So <laughs> yeah, that, and air conditioning was not that common in 1973. So good. Uh, that was S.K. Lee who pointed that out. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, just for the wrestling itself, I mean, it had everything that you could imagine. It had a, a good ladies' match. It had a six-man tag featuring Pat O'Connor and George Steele, among others. I mean, it was a deep, deep card. Yeah, Pat O'Connor was great. He was an absolutely phenomenal worker. Uh, he does not get enough credit. And I'll bet he was still really good in nineteen sixty, uh, nineteen seventy-three. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the same, same with Kaniski. I mean, Kaniski, both of them would hang around wrestling until the early 80s, and they were both uh, getting a little uh, past their prime for sure. But, uh, yeah, in, in the early 70s, definitely, uh, they were still uh, very uh, near the top of their game. You know, we you mentioned the Facebook group. I mean, I say this, I can laugh about it. Uh, there was a big college football game over the weekend between uh, the Oregon Ducks and the Colorado Buffaloes. And Deion Sanders is the head coach at the University of Colorado. They have been so bad on their ass for like 20 years. And Deion comes in and he wins their first three games as their new head coach. He gets the program a lot of publicity. It was a fun story. And then Oregon goes out last Saturday and just punches Colorado in the face. It was 45 to 
nothing, I think, at one point. And, every, and everyone in the group wanted to start their own Colorado versus Oregon thread. I thought it was kind of funny. I'd be like, uh, we already have a thread. <laughs> Yeah, I, I listened to the Dan Patrick show, and uh, th- that's been like an ongoing hot topic on that show. Uh, Dion's uh, reemergence on the national scene, and and everybody's just stunned that he's this excellent coach, and nobody really thought he would do anything. Of course, he didn't look too excellent this weekend. Well, I mean, you know, you're just not. I mean, Oregon is really, really good. Colorado's not the only team that Oregon's going to punch in the face. Uh, they are they're they're kind of an outside contender for a national championship, but they are a contender for the national championship. If Deion Sanders goes six and six and makes the Buffs bowl worthy, it's a miracle. It's one of the greatest one season coaching jobs in the history of college football. So you know. I mean, just because he lost one game to a really good team, he's probably going to lose again this weekend because Colorado's not as good as USC. But I mean, again, Colorado was one and eleven last year. They were out of 131 teams. They were 126 in points scored and 131st in points scored against. That's how. That's bad. And and for Dion to turn the thing around that quickly, kudos to him. But well, let's let's stick to wrestling, um, <laughs> Steve. This week, I'm catching you a little bit by surprise with this. I was watching some NWA wrestling from 1987, and we're at the point. I've gotten to the point where they did the the uh, angle where Ric Flair is going after Jimmy Garvin's valet and wife in real life, Precious. Right. And they have a match where if Jim, if uh, Ric Flair beats Jim Garvin, he gets pre- he gets a dream date with Precious. And if he loses, Jim Garvin's NWA champion. So in '87, I'm like, how are they going to get out of this? <laughs> are they really going to put the title on Garvin because they can't let Ric Flair do this thing with Precious? Well. We all know what happened. It was one of the most, in, I thought, embarrassing angles of its day. Of course, you know, WWF and WCW in the late 90s made this look tame. But uh, I, I thought, you know, and I thought they, what they should have done in hindsight, they, they did the thing where Ronnie Garvin dresses up as Precious and he knocks out Ric Flair and he drops J.J. Dillon into a pool, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ric Rick rents a very expensive hotel suite for his dream date with Precious. Why not have Precious come out and say, Rick, you know, we're good on our word. You know, Jimmy's knee is hurt. Uh, He can't come out, but I'm I'm ready for the dream date. And Rick is all excited, rubbing his hands together. And she's like, now... I was watching Happy Days. I think it'd be fun if you took me to a mall, a malt shop, and Rick could get you know a little bit taken aback, and you know, oh, and Rick about this lingerie—it's a first date. You don't get crazy on me here, right? And just you know, just do it that way, and then Rick like you know starts shrinking a little bit every time she opens her mouth. Oh, and Rick. I haven't been on a first date in a long, long time. But when I was younger, I always had an escort to my first date. And, well, Jimmy's hurt, and my dad's a little bit too old for this. And then Ron Garvin comes out, and he's going to be the escort for the date. And things deteriorate from there for Ric Flair. He gets into a fight with Garvin, gets knocked out, etc. 
Well, that's a, that's a hilarious scenario. Uh, I, I mean, what, what they did with J.J. J. Dillon, you know, Can I Watch and uh, <laughs> all this stuff. I mean, they, that was kind of memorable. But, yeah, I, I really like your spin on it. There's, they could have they could have done it in a more uh, – the way you describe it is a lot more thought-provoking and kind of a lot more reality-based, I would say. I mean, gun to the head, I would have never done – I mean, gun to the head – if they say, okay, you have to do an angle like this, what are you going to do? It, it's not going to end the way they did it. I mean, I did, in 1987, I did not know, I knew a lot of wrestling fans, I did not know one single person who enjoyed that angle. It was, it was, it was like WWF, but like not for kids, and right. it, it didn't work for anyone. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they've done Bertha uh, von Raschke, and they've done these different uh, fan favorites with, you know, cross dressing or whatever. I mean, it really, uh, it was just, just so ludicrous, even for pro wrestling standards. I felt. I thought so too, and I think the uh, the NWA crowd wanted a little bit more of a, you know, that that, that just wasn't for the NWA audience. The a skit like that, and. It, it's a little bit sad because, you know, it, it's always wrestling's always at its worst when the promoter does not understand their audience. And Dusty and Crockett and everyone involved should have and should have just said, hey, this is a bad idea. Yeah, I, I mean, they should have realized that they're really their biggest audience besides, you know, guys were families and you know, middle class people. And uh, what you described, uh, you know, kind of the happy days uh, scenario and a, a kind of a prolonged uh, uh, scenario where Flair would have kind of bailed on his own probably until Ronnie Garvin showed up. Uh, that yeah. that would have been a that would have really played out in a more natural way than kind of the, the ridiculous uh, Ronnie Garvin comes out with his one punch dressed as a lady. I mean, that seems so contrived. It, it really did. And uh, like I said, the idea of Precious, like, no, I'm, I'm good on my word. We'll go on a date. Where do you want to go? <laughs> but don't get crazy. It's a first date, Rick. I actually have a no kissing on the first date role. <laughs> So, anyway, the the uh, backbone of this show is going to be, we're going to take a look at an issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, uh, cover dated 40 years ago, September 1983. Uh, this probably came out either early or mid-July, but we'll go with it anyway. We'll go with the cover date. Steve, I don't think I've looked at this magazine Pro- in probably close to 40 years. I don't think I've opened this up. I had the back issue. I, I no longer have it, but I mean, it's been at least 20 years since I-, I looked at it. And the first thing that really jumped out at me, we've talked about on this show 40 years ago, the World Wrestling Federation and the After magazines kind of went to war with each other. Yeah. I did not recall the level of, you know, aim ready aim fire the after magazines i mean they went after the wwf starting with the cover of this magazine you have bruno sammartino a recent picture of him uh and it's a special fan ballot bruno sammartino was he the greatest wwf champion ever well July 1983, it's not even a contest, okay? Not Mm -hmm. even a contest. Of course it's Bruno. And by pointing that out, that's a shot at Backlund, and a shot at Backlund is a shot at the WWF. Boom, right on the front cover, the the main article. 
I, when I when I saw this, I was really taken aback. Um, when I when I um, saw the magazine and with Bruno on the cover, uh, I had just off the top of my head assumed that this magazine was from mid '85, after Bruno had made his comeback and was wrestling sporadically. Uh, but when I saw the cover date of '83, it made me really wonder: like, was it one of two things? Was it more Bill After thinking to himself, well, you know, Bruno always was our top seller. Let's see if we can get him to come out just one more time to milk Bruno one more time for maybe the biggest sale of the year of magazines. I'm sure that was part of it. Or was it more like, uh, was it partly Bruno saying, hey, I know, you know, New York uh, is going to explode with perhaps the NWA coming up or perhaps Vern Gagne coming to New York or maybe even I'll reconcile with the McMahons. I mean, he, you know, willingly took these, you know, newer pictures. I mean, he didn't want to return to wrestling. I mean, that's what he always said. Uh, He always said that he was just doing it for his son. But I wonder if part of him was thinking, I want to still remain in the limelight a little bit and i want to see if maybe i could kind of uh you know play a role in 1984 wrestling when that comes along and uh, so i'm i you know if you have any ideas or thoughts on that i'd like to hear them well i mean we've talked on the show about you know how exactly how limited bruno's appearances were after he lost the title to superstar billy graham like i, I mean i made the assumption that he was full-time in 1985 far from it he just yeah. made a few appearances here and there and that i think i learned that about a year ago and i was kind of blown away by it yeah he only wrestled in, in those three years from 85 86 and 87 he only wrestled maybe like a, like 15 times of the each end of those three years but um but yeah you're absolutely right this magazine it's so contradictory i mean in the inside which we'll get to they really you know really kind of trash the wwf saying that uh, it's no longer a national champion uh championship caliber and they're pushing martel and races the two true champions and then they have this big story about you know is bruno the greatest champion and and it's such a goofy story because you know they they try to give little profiles of all the other champions and they say well bruno held the title for like 12 years and these others were you know you know 10 months or whatever i mean it's kind of a no-brainer as far as who might be the one but uh but i think they're just you know thinking hey bruno's going to be on the cover we're going to sell a shitload of magazines and we don't really care about anything else and uh, just Steve, just so you know, uh, Nick Bockwinkel was the AWA champion. Uh, Martel won the title a few months later in 1984. Okay, uh, but yeah, and another one right on the cover is Rick Martel, the man to unite the two world titles. So, if you're a casual reader of, <coughs> of this magazine, you're saying, "Wait a minute, two world titles? It's always been three world titles. What's going on here?" So another maybe not so subtle shot at the WWF right on the front cover of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were a fan back then, you really had to kind of read the small print because I mean, like, where are they coming from? Where, where, where is this idea coming from? But yeah, it, it became, a, as you stated, it became kind of a, a running thing in all their magazines that the WWF was no longer considered a major title. It was going to be a regional title in the after magazines. And, 
But anyhow, uh, why don't we dig into this magazine and see what else they have to offer? Well, sure. And I just wanted to point out how absurd that was, that in 1984, 1985, I forget when they restored the WWF as a world championship, but I mean, think about it. It's the middle of 1985, and you're saying the, the AWA title is a world title, but <laughs> Hulk Hogan, who's on NBC, well, that's not a world title. It's not big enough. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was so kind of discouraged and so kind of uh, taken aback by this whole uh, thing. It's in this this article that the WWF was uh, like a lesser title. I mean, I even went back and took a second look at the uh, Bill After biography to see if he had any kind of uh, thoughts about that 40 years later. And he, he really didn't. I mean, he he had really kind of made amends with Vince uh, by then. But uh, yeah. But, but one thing you see in the magazine, uh, there are a couple of articles specifically mentioning, like, uh, well, the WWF won't allow you to take pictures at the yes. matches anymore. And it's like, uh, you know, they were really trying to, to paint this picture of the WWF as this global dark entity, uh, you know, and, and, uh, that it was not fan friendly any longer. And, uh, and, and they were basically, you know, trying to tell their story, but like put it on the fans rather than them. I mean, they mm-hmm. weren't saying, well, gee, they're not letting, you know, all of us, uh, PWI guys, uh, go to the garden and take pictures anymore, but they, uh, try to push it off. The WWF didn't care for their fans anymore, which is a really a different story. Well, let me get to that in a, in a minute because I do want to get to that article. I thought it was really, really interesting. But I want to go to a question, and that's another reason to join the Facebook group. You get to ask questions about the episode, and because we were just talking about the Bruno Sammartino article, Nick, Dr. Nicoliadis asked, in my mind. All of the greatest WWF champion comes down to either Bruno Sammartino or Hulk Hogan. Which man made a bigger impact on the wrestling business in general? When you take into account ticket sales, importance to the company, influence on future wrestlers, level of prestige brought to the title, and any and all other metrics that matter. Steve, do you have a a say in this? Well... You know, the way I look at it is the old WWWF was a regional promotion, and Bruno San Martino undoubtedly was the the greatest regional champion they ever had. Uh, by the time Hulk Hogan had the same belt, it was no longer the Northeastern promotion. It was a, a national promotion or even an international promotion. And uh, what Hulk Hogan did was almost kind of the same thing that Bruno did, but more on a, on a national or inter- international basis because he could go anywhere in the country where Bruno went anywhere in the Northeast and sell out. Hogan went anywhere in the country and sold out. So, you know, you're comparing uh, a, a huge regional success to a huge national or international success in that way. I mean, I probably would give the edge to Hogan, but you know, would there even be a WWF without what had Bruno had done to establish it? I don't know. So, so I guess I'm going to just stay on the fence and stay right in the middle. You, you took the words out of my mouth. Without Bruno Sammartino, there could not have been a Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, you know, to me, it's almost like comparing uh, Babe Ruth-era baseball with today's baseball. Mm-hmm. At, the, at the end of the day, you got to pick someone. I think Babe Ruth is the greatest player to ever play the game. I don't think anyone else is really close. And given, you know, it was a completely different ball game, I'm still going with Hogan, even though I'm a way bigger Bruno Sammartino fan than I was a Hulk Hogan fan. I mean, Hogan took the business to heights that, you know, at one point could have never been imagined. And whenever anyone asks, you know, if not Hogan who, if not Hogan, nobody. <laughs> and I know when you could say, well, if not Bruno who, well, nobody. I mean, they gave Bruno an amazing amount of money to uh, not come out of retirement, but come out of semi-retirement and once again carry the WWF championship because he drew far better crowds than Pedro Morales. So, you know, certainly not saying anything negative about Bruno. There's nothing negative to say, but at the end of the day, I have to go with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and I have no problem with that. I mean, uh, my uh, thing where I would give Bruno an edge in is that, you know, people, like when Bruno lost to Koloff, people were weeping and crying. And I think uh, he resonated so much with those fans. I mean, he was like family to those to those fans in that era. And, uh, you know, I, even, even me years later, I kind of felt like he was family. Uh, with Hogan, I think it was a, 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 you know, hero worship of a different kind, much more like, uh, you know, rooting for The Rock or rooting for your favorite superhero. I mean, it wasn't that kind of a intimate connection of like God, this guy's family to me but but just like maybe a superhero type thing like the way a kid would look at spider-man as my favorite uh comic book hero or or something like that but but they're both great in their own way that, you know, and that's a really good comparison. I mean, people lit candles to Bruno for for heaven's sake, right. and, you know. And Hulk Hogan was a superhero like Spider Man, Superman, Batman, and it's, it's it's a completely different thing. But ultimately, I want to go with Hogan. But let's talk King's Court with Peter King, mm-hmm. and I'll start in the middle. He's talking to a, a female, Jerry McNaughton, a longtime resident of Ohio. Um, and she would, and here she is smiling at the matches with a camera in her hand, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. McNaughton's eyes get wide and bright as she discusses the world of cable TV, which she, like other Americans, has discovered to be a new frontier of entertainment. And then, let me see. Now, that's excitement. I never wanted to go to a live wrestling show until those boys from from Georgia came up here to Ohio. Now, once again, you know, we talk about... Obviously, the WWF is the enemy of the after magazines. Guess who the after magazines are in bed with? Georgia Championship Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling. And Peter goes on to say, We have been receiving a lot of letters from angry fans (laughs) who have attended some WWF wrestling shows recently. The reason they're angry? The WWF has banned all cameras from every WWF arena. Now, this is just not fair. I actually, you know, I never brought a camera to the wrestling matches until, like, I did once in 87. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't remember this policy being put in place where if someone brought a camera, it's like they turn them away. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't really believe that, that that to be true. I mean, I, I had taken pictures at the matches. Uh, I, I don't remember me doing it like sitting inches from the ring, but uh, sitting a ways back. But nobody ever said uh, your your uh, camera will be confiscated if you took a picture. I just kind of think that they were writing this from their point of view of you know yep. Vince is making it hard for us, so we're gonna we're going to act like he's doing the same thing to the fans. And that way the fans will be on our side and they're going to see that the other promotions like the Georgia promotion is a, is the one that they should support and, and endorse. So it just, it just, to me, it just seems so uh, kind of chicken shit, <laughs> kind of like, you know, did we have to go to this level of, you know, it's doesn't seem very honest to me. Well, I, I see that. I, I kind of see both sides of it. You know, mm-hmm. Vince McMahon, he is starting his own magazine, and he is certainly not going to directly help his competition by you know letting them sit at ringside and, t- and take photographs. I totally get that. At the same time, you know, and I, I get where the aftermaths are coming from. Like, yeah, you know, hey, we did. We were kind not really partners, but we certainly had a a mutually beneficial relationship over the years. When the fans buy our magazines, we're practically selling them ads for your wrestling promotion. Right. We're putting your guys over. We're protecting the secrets of the business. We've been helping you out since the beginning of time, and now you just throw us out out of nowhere. And, and I can see their frustration because from their point of view, they were based in, uh, you know, uh, the suburbs of New York. And they obviously it was most easy for them to cover the WWF than to go out of out of state and cover these other more regional promotions down south or on the West Coast or anywhere else. It was just so easy to go to any of the big arenas in the New York market to, to take pictures. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely sympathize with what they were doing. And plus, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of the uh, photos from MSG uh, were the ones that helped really sell the magazines, too. I mean, absolutely, totally. I mean, you know, your Vince is really, I mean, you're right there. They're right there in New York. Get on the train, go, go to Madison Square Garden, take your pictures and sell the magazines based on those pictures. And you're right. I mean, Bruno was by far the best selling wrestler. And, you know, it benefited them to have him on. And and at this point, Bruno and the WWF had had one of their many splits. Right. And, you know, uh, David or David is wrestling in Georgia. So, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of another shot at the WWF. Now, Steve, I got to ask you. Did you buy the Superstar Wrestling game? Did you send away for it? <laughs> well, you know, I saw it here in, in the magazine just for what we're looking at now, and it, it kind of makes me want to have done it. I, I didn't buy it. Had you had you bought it yourself? Yes, I did. It, now, it was like Stratomatic Baseball meets wrestling. I, it was it was fantastic. <laughs> now, w- w- was it of the uh, you know looking back at Stratomatic or even APBA? I, I thought those cards were really well done and and you know really uh, I mean good enough to even go out and buy a new set of Stratomatic cards every season that would follow. Uh, were these? Were you think it was high quality enough? 
Uh, they weren't high-quality like Stratomatic cars. They were just uh, mimeographed, piece, not mimeographed, uh, copied pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like that. But, I mean, who, I didn't need that, you know? I just <laughs> I had this dice game for wrestling, and I was too old. You know, I was, like, almost 18 years old. I was 18 years old. Yeah. And it's probably too, too uh, old to be playing, you know, dice wrestling games in my bedroom by myself, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had my my champions, my promotion, everything set up. Did you end up making like uh, cards for the jobbers too? They they didn't have jobbers. <laughs> yeah. So the guys who were, let's say, uh, the equivalent of a baseball team that finished, you know, sixty and one hundred and two, like uh, let's uh-huh. say uh, Mister Fuji or someone like that, Super Destroyer, right. they wound up being the jobbers. Okay. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> All right. What do you want to talk about next about this magazine? <laughs> well, let's see what we have here. Uh, I mean, they, they have a lot of coverage in here about uh, Larry Zabisco buying the uh, national title in Georgia. Lots of pictures of Larry and lots of uh, commentary about Keller Brooks and Paul Orndorff. Very, very effusive of their praise of the Georgia Championship Wrestling. And as a, when I was younger, I didn't see, I'll use the word, conflict of interest here. But they now are talking about having a show um, featuring Bill Apter and Craig Peters on the World Championship Wrestling uh, two hours. Yeah, not only that, I mean, here's here's a blurb uh, uh, where they're showing a picture of him with Gary Hart, uh, with Bill Apter with Gary Hart, uh, talking about him maybe becoming a wrestling manager. And it, it just seems that in this issue that they're so desperate to put over the fact that, hey, we're going to have a feature on the TV show, uh, Nick Bill Apter is going to become a manager. It's almost like they're they're wanting to make their uh, their staff uh, personalities and people to root for, just like you would the wrestlers themselves yes and here we have a picture of a television with a photo of larry zabisco and craig peters uh, pro wrestling illustrated now on television and it says <laughs> the television debut of pro wrestling illustrated press conference took place on april 30th on world championship wrestling from georgia hosted by senior editor bill apter who was assisted by yours truly press conference started larry zabisco as the first interview subject Interestingly enough, the interview was aired on the same day that NWA President Bob Geigel stripped Zabisco of the national belt. Um, a few episodes ago, I went on about how ridiculous that whole angle was. <laughs> but I mean, you know, once again, they are trashing WWF at every opportunity and clearly doing everything they can to put the Georgia promotion over. And like I said, I just kind of forgot the, the, the extremity of the whole thing. Well, I, I think what, what they ended up doing uh, as far as the after family of magazines, I think that they, soon after this period of Georgia wrestling, I think they really hitched their wagon to Jim Crockett promotions, and they could see that with Dusty at the helm and all the new talent coming into JCP and the Horsemen, of course, once they formed, and Lex Luger and all these big talents, they really uh, tried to... Uh, make them the focal points of the magazine. Sure. I mean, there were times when Hulk Hogan got a special PWI award or, or somebody from the WWF won something, but uh, those were 
getting to be more like far, few and far between. Uh, but WCW and Jim Crockett Promotions were getting the big push in their magazines. I mean, more more Georgia Championship Wrestling slash World Championship Wrestling than anything. I mean, here's another article by the fictional Liz Hunter on assignment talking about Bill Apter being on WTBS, and there's a picture of Bill Apter with his crazy comb over on the on the, the TV set. Yeah, it's a ridiculous picture. I mean, it looks so staticky and so low rent. Uh, it's really goofy. Uh, uh, but as someone uh, who is even a bigger fan of the magazines than I was, I mean, y- you had even more than I did. Uh, it really brings back memories to see um, so many uh, in this in this issue, so many full page ads for the back issues. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you must have had like probably every issue in here. I had every issue in there. I had literally every issue. Really? I, I ran out of issues to to order. I, I if they if there were more issues that I could have ordered, I would have sent away for them. So, so let me ask you this, uh, because I'm, I know all of our uh, stick to wrestling nation is listening here. Around, we're on the edge of our feet right now. How did you store these magazines? Like, where were they? I had them in. The, I had my own bedroom, mm-hmm. and I had them. Stacked in a corner of the closet, yeah. and the stack was about as big as I was, and it was a mix. <laughs> it was a mix of like you know there were some baseball magazines, yeah. football magazines, you know, cream magazine, whatever yeah. else you have, but most of them, and when I say most, probably eighty percent were wrestling magazines, and yeah. mm-hmm. I didn't take really good care of them. I take good care of them at all. What am I talking about? But (laughs) I mean, I didn't have them as collector's items. I had them because, you know, they had articles and photographs about wrestling. And, you know, they, it was, you know, and here's the thing. It it wasn't much, but it's all we had. I mean, if I had known about the Observer in 1983, you better believe I would have you know sent away for it. But you know, it's it's what we had. If I wanted to find out what was going on in you know Mid Atlantic Wrestling or Florida Wrestling or any other promotion I didn't get on cable, I had to get the news from the After magazines. I got it like six or seven weeks after it happened. Because you had so many magazines, did you uh, did you have any kind of um, a way to like uh, you know like if some people with baseball cards they may have like all their Yankees uh, stacked up or all their Red Sox? Did you did you try like stack them and maybe order from the oldest to newest or just kind of threw them all together? I I always had a plan to have them tremendously organized. You know, uh, here's the wrestler in you know in order. Here's inside wrestling in order. And yeah, that like that was ever going to happen. So to answer your question, no, it was just the the pa- the, the the pile o magazines in the, in the corner, and I I had them. I finally threw them out in two thousand nine. And it's like, you know, every time I moved, it would be like I'd have to, you know, carry these very heavy storage boxes of re- of wrestling magazines around. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't I, I moved again in 2009, the last time I moved. I didn't want to just have to move these things again. Like I never look at them. I've had every opportunity to sell them on eBay, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. I'm never getting around to it. So multiple trips to the dumpster, you know, my childhood goes away, but it's okay. It really is. It's it's because, like <laughs> I said, all I did, I never opened them. I still have some, and every time I look at one like I was today prepping for the show, I was like, these things are terrible. And, <laughs> 
<laughs> I say that I I love them as part of growing up. It's like think of a band that you liked as a kid, and you're like, oh my god, I like this when I was a kid, but you know, Kiss or whatever, they're mm. awful. And it's <laughs> like that. Yeah, I well, I'll tell you a little funny story because I I had it maybe as nearly as many as you did, and uh, I I was lucky in the sense of there was one summer or one period of time where I was probably in between jobs and had way too much time on my hands. I actually put my little ad in the you know how the old observers uh, day would have the uh, readers pages and oh yeah, and you could put a little blurb in there. Well, there was a blurb that Steve Generelli is has a group of wrestling magazines he wants to sell and you wouldn't believe like the letters and checks in the mail I was getting from all over the United States and in fact one guy from Australia I can't remember who it was uh, sent me a money order and uh, and he ordered a huge box like a, like a heavy box of them I had a buddy that owned a business and he shipped them like a UPS ground in Australia and oh, I think nice. it took a few months to get there but uh, but yeah I mean I, at least I got a little money off of selling the magazine but there was a really funny letter in here under the Dan Shockett uh, column, and I'll read this to you because this will crack you up. Uh, he says, Dear Mr. Shockett, I would like to know what you think about Dusty Rhodes trying to fool us by covering his face with a mask and calling himself the Midnight Rider. If you ask me, he's fooling no one. Dusty Rhodes has the experience to wrestle and beat almost anyone. So why does he pull a stunt like this? I would like Dusty to know he's not fooling me. And that was from George yeah. Simon in Mongolia, Mongolia, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Now, let me quickly point out that Dan Shockett was not fictional. He was a real-life person who... Did the who did this real life column and boy what a great response. Go ahead, Steve. No, you read it. You read it. (laughs) All right, dear Mister Segman. While no one can be sure that it's Dusty Rhodes under the mask, it would be horrifying to think (laughs) that there are two such bodies in this world. (laughs) If it is Rhodes, I think we owe him a debt of gratitude. Covering his face is the most socially socially responsible thing he has ever done. Instead of complaining that he's masked, I think we should... I think we should cover himself completely in pup tent. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. And yeah, that was the next thing I was going to bring up. Dan Shockett's columns were awesome. Yeah, and, and here he is, body shaming Dusty Rhodes. Call me woke, but uh, this is disgusting. <laughs> this is just not right. <laughs> this is just not right. Oh, first Howard Stern, now Dusty Rhodes. It's a very sad episode of <laughs> Stick to Wrestling. Well, well, one thing I wanted to add is if you look at the next page of the magazine, and I hope our readers are following along with us here a little bit, uh, there's an incredible photo, and I think this photo may have been taken in Houston, but it's got Jimmy Snuka like in midair, just flying through the air, and you can see on the other end of the ring, like really far away, is Bruiser Brody down on the mat, kind of waiting for him to to land. I think that's Mike York. Let me take a closer look. Okay. Yeah, that's the Alaskan Mike York. Okay, well, thanks for that and correction. And that's definitely Houston. Okay, well, I had it half right then. But, right. but anyhow, but but this this I just wanted to point this out that you know for all the the bashing that John and I are doing on the wrestling magazines, this this photo was is such a great example of why we kept buying them because. I guess just like one of those great Jack Kirby uh, Marvel comic magazines or, you know, one of those old school things, 
this photo just captures the imagination of wrestling and it just just speaks volumes about how exciting it was back then and and you know we couldn't really go to these other territories or get footage from them but uh, a photo like this it really spoke a thousand words it sure did i mean I, i've mentioned on the show before that the most exciting part of my childhood was when Vince McMahon was on TV and he'd say, and making his debut in the World Wrestling Federation. And if you didn't read the magazines, you didn't know who Greg Valentine was. You didn't know who Magnificent Morocco was, but I knew who they were, and I was finally going to get to see them. And it was the, the magazines that had, you know, raised that anticipation for me. You know, thus, another example of why I could see Bill After feeling a little bit backstabbed by the WWF. Oh, yeah. And speaking of, of the whole Greg Valentine thing, that, that reminded me of something I was thinking just the other day. You know, the way wrestling has gotten to be so uh, processed and so uh, overproduced with the music and everything. Uh, what I miss about the old, old days is I know you're a big fan of those. Uh, you, you used to like to see the matchups like, uh, say, Gypsy Rodriguez against Steve King. You like those kind of weird. I was that much of a psycho, yes. <laughs> yes, you like that kind of a thing. But but the cool thing about that are watching, you know, uh, Mark Pohl or whoever. Uh, once you saw two or three of those types of matches where it was like nobody's wrestling, when you see like Greg Valentine come out with that, you know, $5,000 robe he's got on. On. I mean, you were blown away. I mean, he didn't even have to wrestle by that point. He just, you know, I think uh, John had, had uh, termed it a uh, long time uh, artificial charisma or manufactured charisma. But once you once you saw these lower level guys and then all of a sudden uh, Greg Valentine appears all tan and with his, you know, fancy robe on. It's like, uh, man, you, you were blown away. He didn't even have to wrestle at that point. When with Greg Valentine, it didn't come across as artificial charisma. With Ric Flair, it didn't come across as artificial charisma. Same thing with Paul Orndorff. Mm-hmm. But there are some guys when they're wearing the fancy robe, they, it, it, the whole thing looks just out of place, and it's almost like, dude, you are trying too hard, and that is just not you. Like uh, uh, Ron or Robert Fuller. Nothing against yeah. those guys. When I see them wearing Ric Flair robes, I'm like, okay, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah. Same with Chick Donovan. You know, he he looked like Ultimate Warrior, but he was Chick Donovan. <laughs> yeah, Chick Donovan was one of those guys growing up where I was like, you know, I, I didn't understand why he wasn't getting a bigger push. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's got a good look. He's well built. And then I came to learn. Well, first I saw him in World Class getting a little bit of a push, and oh my god, that guy's unpushable. <laughs> and secondly, then I heard him. Then I found out what work rate was, and it's like. Like, okay, Chick couldn't work. Yeah. No, 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 no offense to Chick Donovan fans out there, but, you know, the guy's not exactly Tiger Mask. <laughs> well, th- then one of the next articles they had was A Tale of Two Champions, and they have a, um, a story about two Florida champions, uh, young babyface Scott McGee and young heel uh, Frank Dusick. I will never, anytime Frank Dusick's reign, anytime his name comes up, but Jeff Boundrin on his old uh, wrestling tape list, you know, would talk about, you know, uh, Frank Dusick being the Southern Heavyweight Champion, and and Jeff, his exact words, I wonder what Barry did to piss Dusty off that week. <laughs> Great line, and it's so true. 
Well, well I'm, I'm looking at this article about uh, Scott McGee, and uh, and he's he's actually a good friend of Barry Rose, by the way. Yes. And and um, in the article, they're talking that he's a great tag team wrestler. And they're mentioning Jay Strongbow. I had to bring this up. Uh, this is something I just found out about Chief Jay Strongbow this week. Uh, apparently, the 1982 push that he got with the Jewel Strongbow was only because um, he was going to run some outlaw shows in the Northeast. He, Strongbow was, yeah, the, yeah, and, and this is why uh, uh, to 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 prevent that from happening and losing revenue, uh, the uh, the elder Vince heard about that, and that's why he brought him back because he didn't want to bring him back because remember he thought he looked old after the Valentine feud. And uh, but to to prevent him from losing money on these these bootleg shows, he brought him in, gave him a push, and of course brought in Jules Strongbow as well. And this is something that Jules Strongbow had uh, talked about recently. So, uh, um, I, oh, I, you, so you got the information from Frank Hill? Frank Hill from Frankie Hill. Yep. Okay. Here's here's why I question that story. I'm yeah. not saying it's wrong. He might know better than I do. But number one, Vince McMahon Sr. is not going to feel threatened by Chief J. Strongbow promoting. I mean, has he ever promoted before? Uh, well, but but I mean, you know, I think I think there had been uh, a similar thing with uh, Antony and Araka, baby, uh, going back to maybe the mid seventies uh, before he became the announcer, the color guy. Uh, I think he was. And doing- what an announcer he was! <laughs> <laughs> Let me take my shoes off. But, but anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, make yourself comfortable, <laughs> Rock. Good. That's right. Yeah, I kind of think that might be how he got that job because he was uh, going to work f- some outlaw shows maybe even supported by the Crockett's. I don't know. But uh, but but I, I just believe the story. You, you might be right. Maybe it's a lot of hot air from uh, Frankie Hill. I don't know. But but that, may, that maybe made sense. Maybe he just doesn't know. Maybe he heard the story somewhere and is repeating it. I'm, not, mm-hmm. I'm definitely not calling the guy a liar or anything yeah. like that. Well, but well, here's why. Here's mm-hmm. another reason why I, I see a giant hole in that story. Okay. okay? First of all, I, I Vince Vince Sr. should have felt absolutely no threat to Strongbow, you know, doing something like that. Mm-hmm. I would have been like, Chief, you know, go ahead, set your money on fire. <laughs> it'll be a lot less convenient, you know, a lot more convenient for you. But secondly, after Strongbow retired, he had a job in the WWF for how long? Yeah, for 15 years or so. Uh, at least that. I mean, he was an agent with that company for a long time. Then again, a lot of the time when Vince McMahon has a uh, uh, Vince Jr. has a serious falling out with a wrestler, it, it feels like Vince always goes out of his way to make sure that wrestler comes back home. Like, you know, I couldn't believe Sergeant Slaughter came back in 1990 because his fallout with Vince was pretty serious. Same thing with Jesse Ventura in 1999. You think those two would never get back together, but they did. So who knows? Maybe that was just another example of Vince taking care of someone that he had to, you know, make amends with at some point. Oh, yeah. And then um, the next article is actually the one where they're really putting a heavy focus on Rick Martel and uh, not, well, not Rick Martel, but the uh, AWA champion and the NWA champion reconciling uh, to be one champion. And of course, the WWF isn't even in the in the article. No, and uh, once again, a clear shot at the WWF. They're telling you that the, you know, I could see 
the After Magazine saying, look, the NWA champion is the World Heavyweight Champion. I always felt that way uh, at this point in time because the NWA Champion went to every territory and defended that title. There were like 12 territories plus Japan and Australia that the that you know the NWA champion represented the AWA champion represented one promotion and so did the WWF champion so i could see that argument but of course the after magazines weren't going to piss off vergania so they just put out this ridiculous double standard yeah, they they did, and I I really liked uh, the way that Norman Keitzer and his magazines handled it a lot better. Is he just flat out came out and just said uh, it's McMahon wrestling and it sucks, and <laughs> he was a lot more kind of uh, in your face about it. Didn't like what uh, WrestleMania was. Didn't like the changes that uh, younger Vince put into motion, and he just called it for what it was. And but sadly, the Keitzer magazines uh, kind of went the way of the dinosaur within a year year or so they they did and the kaiser magazines were sold at wwf events and once the wwf pushed them away i'm certain it was you know almost you know a death knell to them yeah yeah it's just and they um, did the programs too yeah and, and they and they did a, a phenomenal job with those programs and uh george napolitano had written a lot of the articles for those and uh and of course uh, the great brian lass is really uh done a great job preserving the legacy of those uh, publications by uh, buying uh, the uh, that uh, title and uh, and keeping all the great uh, uh, products from Norm Keitzer and maybe hopefully someday Brian will do some kind of a re- release of uh, maybe a book form of uh, best of Norm Keitzer magazines or something like that who knows I'd love to see that. And by this point in 1983, as a matter of fact, he started in 1982. George Napolitano put out his own magazine uh, competing with the After Mags at the time. I'm trying to think of the name of it, and I can't. No, I know what you mean. Was, yeah, it was under the Starlog magazine uh, yes. franchise. And um, yeah, and I, I, I never really cared for those, honestly. I, I, uh, I mean, they had tons of photos and just, you know, a lot of photos, and they covered you know, like Puerto Rico, and they covered really a lot more of the territories, but it just seemed like the articles were just really like slipshod and not as. Yeah. Uh, not that these are great articles either, but you just kind of got used to the way after did the magazine and did their format, and and you kind of enjoyed it, I guess, for what it was. Uh, that's that's the thing. You got used to it. You could kind of laugh at it. Uh, the Napolitano magazines were kind of you know they they were a tough read. They they, they had great. Uh, photographs, but they were a tough read at the yeah. end of the day. What, what, what do you think about this? Uh, they gave us kind of a centerfold uh, up close on Kevin Von Erich. The magazines are becoming much more glossy. I mean, now Pro Wrestling Illustrated is offering you, the fan, this this glossy uh, two-page centerfold of a pro wrestler who has posed for it. And, you know, they did this every month, and this didn't exist, you know... I, I forget exactly when they started doing this. I want to say 1982, but they used to have like a, a a color shot on the very back of the magazine, and now you're getting this like absolutely great centerfold. So it's a great idea, and I also they they mentioned they have a um 
a close-up on Kevin Von Erich where they go over his career. And two things I want to point out. Number one, because we have not talked enough college football on this episode, <laughs> played high school football under the great Hayden Fry. And it's like, wow, for those unaware, Hayden Fry, uh, he's in the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he coached at, at the University of Iowa for like 20 years. So I'm like, wow, Kevin Von Erich played for, Kevin, for Hayden Fry. And the couple of times I talked to Kevin, I never brought this up. <laughs> and it goes on to say he has a pet bulldog and a snake. So uh, that should have got him hired by WWF right there. I mean. <laughs> yeah, read this and get him on the plane. And then it's his first match was a victory over Brian St. John in Dallas in 1978. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know his first match, Kevin's first match, was against Paul Pershman, a.k.a. Playboy Buddy Rose, in 1976. I don't know how I know that off the top of my head, but I knew it, and I checked it, and it was. I'm not sure how they came up with such an egregious error. I mean, they had to know Kevin was wrestling before 1978. Yeah, that's embarrassing that they had that error in there. And uh, But the, the photo, I mean, I'm just looking at the headshot of him. It's kind of a nice photo, uh, uh, you know, to see uh, all the stress the poor guy has gone through over the years. Uh, to see him young like this and pre all the tragedies and the terrible things that happened and the difficult uh, challenges that he had, it's just kind of nice to see him looking young and uh, with the, uh, you know, the world at his fingertips in this early photo. Yeah, absolutely. And Ke and Kevin Von Erich was always a guy, you know, I saw him wrestling in Georgia in 1981, and he always struck me as, wow, this guy has a huge future. And it turned out he did, but I'll tell you what, the wrestling business had not been turned as inside out as it did, you know, and we're about to see some major changes in 1984. Um, you know, Kevin, I think, could have gone on to become an even bigger star. Yeah, he he's one that definitely um, his um, his career arc uh, really just dipped uh, so low so fast, considering how on top he was. Yeah, the injuries started piling up. Now, Kevin, in this article, assuming he actually contributed it all to it, uh, <laughs> says his greatest match was against Dick Murdoch. And this was in St. Louis in either 80 or 81. Steve, do you have a greatest Kevin Von Erich match? Um, well, I mean, we, we had watched one earlier uh, this year. The one with Harley Race was a really good match. And I remember uh, complaining uh, from a kayfabe standpoint that he was, you know, trying to uh, hit Harley with a pile driver like seconds into the match. And you, you have to wear down your opponent first before you can just hit him with a pile driver. But, yeah. uh, but that, but that might've been uh, one of the best matches is it was very uh, well contested and, uh, uh, you know, a hot match. My favorite Kevin Von Erich singles match, because they had the bad street matches uh, against the Freebirds from Fort Worth in 83 and 84, and those were incredible matches. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't want to list a six-man tag as the best match. His best match was, I think it took place uh, Labor Day weekend in 1985. It was in Fort Worth. It was against Chris Adams and Seek It Out. It was, yeah, I think it was... Uh, 
September 5th or 4th, 1985. It was, it's not on the network because it was a Fort Worth match, but I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. It was absolutely wild, and the ref got bumped, and his neck got caught in the ropes, and everyone panicked, and Gino Hernandez was in a cage on <laughs> up, atop the ring, and he gets his suit ripped off after the match. It was just nuts. So seek that Kevin Von Erich match out, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I, I have to say, uh, Chris Adams was one of those guys uh, forgetting about his out-of-the-ring uh, problems. Uh, you know, he just, whatever whatever year you pick, his matches were always outstanding. I mean, I can remember <clears throat> even in the late 90s when uh, WCW had picked him up. Uh, maybe it was the mid-90s or the late 90s. I can't remember. But he was just going to be like an extra guy uh, on the depth chart. He wasn't going to be a key performer. But to me, he was always a great addition to any show, uh, kind of like a Chavo Guerrero type, somebody who just having him on the show would definitely uh, perk it up and make it better. It was really weird when I watched uh, Nitro in the late 90s, which I, I didn't make a habit of because I didn't like the show. Yeah. Seeing guys that used to be huge stars like Chris Adams and Rick Martel, Greg yeah. Valentine, mm-hmm. in the roles that they were in. Yeah. Well, I was happy. I was happy that Martel at least got a push there. I think because Bischoff was running the show and he came from the AWA. I think he oh, t- that's kind right. Of, he kind of protected Martel a little bit and treated him like a former world champion. And so I, I like that that part of Martel's push. Uh, I never put those two things together, but you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, going down a little bit further, uh, we have the Wrestling Inquirer, <laughs> Wrestling News by Bill Apter. And, of course, the lead the lead story is a Georgia story, Larry Zabisco being stripped of the National Heavyweight Championship. There's a picture of Larry in the ring pointing his finger, and, uh, guy, he's looking really pudgy in the waistline. <laughs> Yeah, he kind of is in this picture. And you can tell this is from the WTBS studios. And then, let me see, we're talking about Roddy Piper facing surgery, the Von Erichs demanding a Missouri title rematch against Crusher Blackwell, and the Andre versus Kamala feud that was going on in Mid-South Wrestling. Yeah, yeah, the Andre versus Kamala. I mean, if you talk about... um what was the least talked about WWF feud or or feud that we never talked about? That's probably the one. I mean, uh, um, I, I do remember that one match. I think it was uh, Andre kind of leapt off or fell off the top of the cage onto Kamala, and uh, that's that's about it. And I remember Kamala on the shoot interview talking about he actually brought a gun to the ring or like a small handgun or a pistol uh, to scare Andre, I think, during a match. It's kind of interesting to hear. Kamala brought a gun into the ring? Yeah, yeah. He, he said... Uh, the it, hell? Why? That, well, that was his way. That was his way of, of, of if uh, he felt... I, I guess he just felt for, fear, fear for his life from what he said. He, was, he thought he was going to get manhandled or beaten up by Andre. Andre, don't manhandle me or goddamn it, I'll shoot you. <laughs> I have the gun in this lion cloth. Don't mess with me. <laughs> the Ugandan gun laws were far too loose, I tell yes, you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uganda is the Florida of Africa. But anyway, so let me get to this article. Matt Brock, okay? Another fictional guy, doesn't exist, who writes columns. And he writes an article about Sergeant Slaughter coming back to the WWF. 
And he uses this article to bash Bob Backlund. And this is how far these guys are going. I mean, they're, let me see. You know how someone's, how everyone is making such a big deal about Sergeant Slaughter's comeback, mainly because of what happened last time he was in the WWF. You don't remember? It turns out Slaughter had Bob Backlund in the Cobra Clutch, and it looked like Backlund was going to submit. All of a sudden, here comes Arnold Skoland up to the ring, brandishing a chair and bringing it down on Slaughter's head. I'm not going to say Skolin's a coward, but he did hit Sarge from behind. And he goes on to, you know, just keep trashing Bob Backlund. And, yeah, no doubt Bob Backlund signed the match because he knew coming off a loss, Sergeant Slaughter would be much easier to defeat. The mark of a champion, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, he, he just uh, it, it's just it's just ridiculous at this point. I mean, if, if you're a WWE fan reading this magazine, you you just have to be uh, asking yourself, do I ever want to buy another after magazine again? And probably the answer is no. I I I was a WWF fan. I, I kept buying them. I kept <laughs> buying them until like '87. Uh, here's more. Let's look at the facts. Now, again, this is a babyface column. Okay, mm-hmm. let's look at the facts. If Backlund took on Slaughter when Sarge was at full sw- strength, do you think the Chicken Wing would be an even match for the Cobra Clutch? Don't make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's just a goofy article. I mean, they have a picture of Sergeant Slaughter against Bruno. They had that one-off match at Madison Square Garden, and they said that Slaughter feuded with Bruno. They didn't really feud with each other. They just had one match at the Garden. That was it. Yeah, that was after Slaughter attacked Skoland, and on TV, this is like November 1980, mm-hmm. and Backlund was in Japan, mm-hmm. legit, and they just put Bruno in the main event against Slaughter, going after uh, revenge after Sergeant Slaughter. Now, Steve, I'll tell you what, we're almost an hour into this, and I want to take some of the questions, but I... One thing about these magazines, they were insane in 1983, but they're even more insane in 2023, some of the advertisements we have in this magazine. And one of the advertisements, and this is all clearly aimed at at men, at at desperate, lonely wrestling fan men, it's it's a book, and the book is called How to Be Good Looking. (laughs) And just reading some of it, yes, the Looking Good system, consisting of two famous bestsellers, inner looks, and building a better body is guaranteed to make you far, far handsomer in two short weeks or your money back. What really got me about this... I was laughing at it anyway. It says send just twenty one ninety plus two dollars shipping. I'm like, do you know how much that it, how much that was? Twenty one ninety in. I was making four dollars an hour in nineteen ninety eighty three, and I did the inflation calculator thing. They want seventy three dollars and sixty seven cents of two thousand twenty three money for this thing. Steve, you know how you want how to be good looking. Have really have the right set of parents. And a good cosmet- a good cosmetic surgeon. <laughs> probably, probably the surgeon costs less than this book. Well, well, uh, uh, kind of uh, using your thought process here. Uh, there was earlier in the magazine a full page ad for something called the Johnson Smith Company, where you could buy uh, like. Uh, uh, 
Kung Fu Grip wristband, a slot machine bank, um, a mystery knife, a Confederate. Oh, I remember flag. these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're buying all this weird stuff, uh, like uh, you know, the kind of a thing that uh, you should go to shake your buddy's hand. And you give him like an electrical shock. Uh, I mean, oh, I was so captivated by this full page ad. I, I actually looked them up on Wikipedia, and apparently the company was around for close to 100 years. They finally went out of business in 2019. They were oh wow you know, it, it, yeah yeah it's really interesting uh, the story and they even had like an outlet store in Bradenton, Florida from like the mid 80s to the uh, like the end of the 90s. But uh, but it, I did it, not it, take a close enough look at this. Look at this stuff: eight foot high balloons, <laughs> a thousand tiny magnets, a police style warning light you can put on your car. Look at this crap. Yeah, the ventriloquist dummy. I mean, they have everything that a kid would want. And, uh, and, and you know, from reading all this stuff, and I was thinking about all these weird products, I mean, it, you know, I, I know we have a lot of great uh, Hollywood uh, types like Scott Corners that listen to this show. Uh, anybody who's inventive enough should write a, a sitcom based on this company. I mean, you could just imagine the floors of, uh, you could have William Shatner play the president of the company. You could have a, a floor. It would be like the office, you know, it would be like all these weird people putting one office together. Uh, the guy that has the exploding eyes with the uh, uh, slinkies off of them in one area. I mean, I think it just writes itself, really. I, I, I think noted humorous Scott Cornish is how he must be referred to. And one thing <laughs> I, I've noticed from this, Steve, in 1979, I went to Jack's Joke Shop yeah? in Boston. Really? Okay. Now, on the on, in the front window is this T-shirt with what looks like a giant pile of vomit on it, and it says, <laughs> I told you I was going to be sick. I did not buy that. But what I did buy, and this is being offered by the Johnson Smith Company, yeah. is a phony brick, a fake brick. <laughs> Can you imagine 13-year-old me with a fake brick? <laughs> No, no. <laughs> you you don't want to imagine it. It was I had a lot of fun with that thing. I terrorized people like throwing a brick at them. And like, no. <laughs> Well, another thing that we have to mention here that I also found hilarious, and this is on page 45, right before the Sergeant Slaughter article, they had this really uh, neat uh, profile piece on Mr. Wrestling 2, and uh, you know it's always so confounding uh, what the true age of Mr. Wrestling 2 is, and they have this picture of him standing with this really nice lady who looks like she's about 72, and you have to guess that that's not his mother, but that's his wife, so... <laughs> Johnny Walker, Johnny Walker looks like he's about seventy-five years old, uh, wearing his Mister Wrestling Two mask. So he may as well be forty-five. I, you know what, I, I, when I saw Mister Wrestling Two for the first time in nineteen eighty-one, <laughs> he didn't strike me as being old. But yeah. when, when he came back to Georgia in nineteen eighty-three, it was like, okay, this guy in this mask is really old. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what what happened in those two years, or if I just somehow became more, uh, I don't know, observant. But I mean, he over those two years, like I I picked up on wow, this guy's really old. Well, you and couldn't I, find out how old back in those days. Oh no, you you couldn't find out. But uh, I, I always I always go back to that 1988 feud he had with. Uh, 
Colonel Buck Robley, who was just released, released from an insane asylum, coming out of the box in Continental, I believe. <laughs> or was it I Deep think South that was Wrestling? Robley's own pr- uh, promotion in Atlanta. <laughs> okay. I think it was called Southern Pro Wrestling. And all <laughs> yeah. that. He, you, you have him recording, uh, or the, it, the tapings are taking place in a bar, and you see video game machines on the hard cam <laughs> and people playing them while the wrestling matches are going on. It was the the late Rick Stewart was the one who uh, told you about this unbelievable angle you'd be about to see where uh, Colonel Buck Robley came out of the box to face Mr. Wrestling 2. Yeah, I I think I have some of that still on tape or DVD or something. It, it's, it's not very good, but it, it's <laughs> wrestling. What can I say? One last thought on the magazine before we go to the questions, and that is that I really believe that they – someone told these guys that Rick Martel was in line to win the AWA title at some point because, you know, they, they're talking about him being the man to unify the two world titles, and I, I just – to me, that's a hint that, you know, uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, that they were in on, yeah, Rick Martel's winning the AWA title. Yeah, they, they really uh, pushed that throughout the issue for sure. All right. Steve, I'll tell you what. Can you pick a question to start off with that we got from the Stitch Wrestling Universe? Absolutely. I do have the questions right here. Uh, let's see. Um, Sean Ryan asks if WWE doesn't pull the pin right after this by transitioning from Sheik to Hogan and waited, say, six months. Does the business thrive like it did or do they miss the magic? I, I think um, I think they still would have been OK if they had held up a bit and uh, let Sheik hold it for a few months. Uh, but, uh, you know, the way they did it was just seemed like such a uh, earth shattering move. Uh, I mean, you and I were stunned enough when Backlund finally lost the title. But then to see Hogan win it to four weeks later, uh, it just seems so perfect. And uh, Hogan was off to the races and the WWF was off to the races making money. Yeah, I think to answer Sean's question, I think they they did the right thing. I think there's there's no sense in having Iron Sheik as champion for six months. Um, I'll bet part of the agreement with Hogan was, hey, we're going to put the belt right on you, and we're going to get rolling. And having the Sheik on the title on the Sheik for six months would have taken you know six months off of Hogan's reign, obviously, and that's something you didn't want to do in 1984. That's a good point, John. Very very well said. All right, thank you. Was it common knowledge among the smart fans at the time, Jason Bailey's asking this, that the title switch to race was just setting up Starcade 83? Jason, I was not a smart fan in 1983, but I could even I could see through it that this is all a big setup for one card where Ric Flair regains the title and it's sold as such. And I mean, we mentioned this this before on the show. I mean, the NWA Championship had never been used in such a manner that hey, we're going to book two title changes uh, just to build up this one event. And if I'm you know Fritz von Eric, Eddie Graham, whoever, uh, I'm, you know, looking at this in a dim light. Yeah, you're definitely thinking of the NWA champion is now just this representation of JCP. I mean, JCP is really holding all the cards at this point. Uh, by that point, they definitely were. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe not in 1983. I'm not sure about that. And I'm sure, you know, 
part of me says that, you know, maybe Fritz and Eddie Graham, whoever else, were, eh, we're okay with Harley having the title for six months. Let's shake things up a little bit, and then we'll put it back on Flair. Um, but like I said, that had never been done before, and it represented to me a significant change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think Sam Mushnick's presence was truly missed. And uh, good I, point. And that I, would never have happened with, with if Sam were around. Oh yeah, I mean they they, they needed a, a focal point there, or a person to really make the decisions. Um, Michael Faulkner has a good question. He says we're less than three months from Starcade and less than four from Sheik beating Backlund. What indications, if one was paying attention, were there to the avid wrestling fan that the whole business was about to change? Well, and he says if the answer is only the explosion of cable, you know, it, it wasn't. Um, or that was part of it. But to answer his question from my point of view, I had no idea that the wrestling business w- was about to get hit with a tidal wave. I saw that some little things were changing. Um, but, you know, things were always changing a little bit in the wrestling business. But I had no clue that, that you know, the WWF was going to do what it did. I still didn't know until probably spring of 1984 when I'm watching All-American Wrestling and I see that the WWF is now promoting in places like Chicago and Miami. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just just shocking how uh, things had changed so uh, quickly. I mean, the WWF was doing their national expansion. Um, but looking back now on uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, after the success of Starcade, it wasn't like things were all like, uh, you know, we're making a ton of money. It was almost like they had to go back in, into a rebuilding uh, mode because they had lost a lot of the talent. You know, I mean, they lost Piper, Valentine, Steamboat would be gone not too soon in the future. Uh, Dusty ended up bringing in a lot of talent. But 84 was kind of that uh, year, year of transition, as somebody posted on uh, YouTube, uh, a lot of videos from 84. So it wasn't, it wasn't all uh, happy times and making lots of money in JCP. There was a lot of rebuilding going on, too. There was, and even I noticed in, you know, by the end of 1984, that things were really changing in JCP, you know. Piper and Valentine were gone. Uh, guys like Mulligan were gone. Jones was now a manager. And, you know, Dusty came in and he was the big star. And you're right, you know, Steamboat would soon be gone. And a lot of those wrestlers, I mean, you know, I didn't gr- obviously grow up watching Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, but it felt like they were using a lot of the same crew. They had been using a lot of the same crew for a long, long time. And, you know, it, it, guys were constantly turning in mid- Atlantic, and it felt partially felt like it was time for something new. It, it's 1984, and it's time for the 70s to be over. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, as we've talked about before on the show, uh, uh, Dusty, what he would do for JCP, uh, he would really uh, take them to brand new heights that they had never achieved before. I mean, the promotion had been successful before, but what he would do over the next two or three years was phenomenal. Uh, it started to get a bit stale in '87 and got worse in '88, but there was a lot of major successes in '85 and '86, and even part of '87 uh, before it got bad. 
You know, before I wrap up, I mean, like I said, I as I said at the beginning of the program, I've been watching some NWA from 1987, and it felt like they ran out of things for Ric Flair to do. They ran out of opponents for him. Nothing against Jimmy Garvin, but summer of 87, the WWF is running Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race, and you guys are running Ric Flair against Jimmy Garvin, and Jimmy Garvin was just not big enough a star for that type of program and if you're saying well they just ran out of guys look it's Dusty's responsibility to create guys to put wrestlers in the position where they can draw against a Ric Flair and it felt like you know okay I've got the horsemen I've got myself Dusty Rhodes Nikita and the Road Warriors I'm all set and those matchups became stale quickly and you know there there was i've said this on the show before it felt like there was never a plan to get ron garvin over enough where the fans would accept him as nwa champion instead it just kind of happened and it blew up on them what can i say well i think what you what you described uh what happened to jcp by the by the middle or the end of 87 is kind of like watching wcw around uh you know, 98, 99, when uh, Vince starts pulling ahead of them again, and the NWO thing is just kind of like there's no ending to it. They don't know where how to transition from the NWO, which is really a great angle at first, but it just became a quagmire after a while. It just seemed that the Bischoff, once his major play was over and done with, he didn't know where to go from there. And uh, so it was kind of like uh, a parallel story 20 years later. Yeah, I mean the NWO. It's it's very reflective of the Horsemen. I'm gonna. Some people don't like hearing this, but by '88, it was time for JCP to completely go in a different direction to get rid of the Horsemen that had been done to death. And you know they just they didn't do it. And they when the Horsemen broke up, it wasn't by choice. It was because Tully and Arn left for the end, left for the WWF, and then Barry Windham left, and there was just no one left to be a Horseman. And then as soon as they could put that thing back together they did and you know like i said it was it was a lot like the nwo in 99 i mean if they could have in retrospect they should have uh dusty should have put himself in that kind of behind the scenes position get off camera but maybe come back like a bruno did like a couple times a year pop a big house and have the horsemen be the fan favorites that that probably would have been the way to go Oh, well, yeah, when uh, Arn Anderson and Ole came back in 89, I mean, they had the horsemen as baby faces, and they were over like crazy. Mm-hmm. Steve, it, the hour always goes by way too fast. Thank you for once again being the guest, contributing to Stick to Wrestling. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, it was great to look back at these Bill After magazines. Yes, I I spent an an amazing amount of money (laughs) as a child. I didn't exactly have money to burn, as children tend not to do, uh, on these magazines. But I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank the great Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat South Carolina. Don't let them hang 65 on you again. This concludes our podcast day.